If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. Danny and Jamie are heading out. They're going to go uh, and share, uh, say their goodbyes to AFA kids upstairs. And so uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. We've been there for several weeks. We're going to look in there again to this morning. The man of God named Elijah was at a place called Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is a significant place. It was on this same mountain that some centuries before, about seven centuries before, a man named Moses received the Ten Commandments. That was a pretty big deal on that mountain. And on this mountain, this godly man named Elijah, also known as a prophet or a spokesman from God, he also had an extraordinary experience on Mount Horeb. He, the Bible says, we looked at this last week, the Bible says he saw and felt a powerful wind. God was doing a work in his life, kind of a restoration work from some of the things that had preceded it. And in that place, he, he went out one night and he saw and he felt this powerful wind. And then he, then he felt and he heard a rumbling earthquake. And then he saw and perhaps even felt the heat of a consuming fire. But the Bible says that God was not in those. And then the Bible says, again, we looked at this last week, that he, he, he heard a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. God can still speak to us in those gentle whispers if you're listening. There are times when God can speak to us in momentous, powerful, exciting moments. Thank God for that. But let me tell you, God can also speak to us in silent and quiet whispers if we're listening, if we're sensitive to the leading of His Holy Spirit. And this is what was happening here. God was speaking. And in that gentle whisper, the Bible says, God gave Elijah three clear commands. Two of them were to anoint two different kings of two different nations. But it was the third command. We read it briefly again last week. It was the third command that most altered Elijah's life. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. God said this to Elijah, anoint Elisha sounds similar, but it's different. God said to Elijah, anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat from Abel-Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. With that statement, in that third command that God gave him on Mount Horeb, with those words, God told Elijah that someone would succeed him or replace him. God said, this is the person who is going to follow after you. Now, it would be about 10 years before that would actually happen. It would be about 10 years be before uh, uh, Elijah would move off the scene and Elisha would move to center stage. It was going to be about 10 years, but God told Elijah that he would be replaced by Elisha. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, tells us about Elisha's calling. Follow with me. Here we go. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing, the Bible says, with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak, I should have had that mantle up here, threw that cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? 
Look at the next verse. It says, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah, and he became Elijah's servant. Now, Elisha was virtually unknown outside his immediate area. I'm not putting him down, but at this point, all we really know about him is that, that, that he is a farm laborer and perhaps a, a person of some means. We may assume that he had this, but, but he was not known outside the area. Here's the thing. Anonymity has never been a problem with God. Let me say that again. Anonymity or uh, being out of the way and unknown has never been a problem with God. In fact, you read throughout Scripture and you will find it is often the unknown and it is the -the out-of-the-way persons that God most often uses to do His purposes. That's a common theme running throughout. There are people that no one else knows but God knows. There are people in out-of-the-way places, but they're not out of the way to God. And it's those people that He more often than not chooses to use. God knew Elisha's name and where he lived. And let me just add this to you as well. God knows your name and he knows where you live. God's will has almost nothing to do with with your address or the, the knownness of your name, because sometimes he will use that, but, but, but very seldom does that, what is important to him more than anything with every person is the condition of your heart. Second Chronicles 16 tells us that the Lord looks throughout the whole earth and he's looking for those whose hearts are devoted to him. Listen, God is much more concerned about your devotion than your location. He's much more concerned about your relationship with him and your heart towards him. So, you know, well, you can be in the most obvious place, but your heart is corrupt and, and, and God will bypass you. But you can be in the most out-of-the-way place, but your heart is for him and God notices. So anonymity is never an issue with God, and it wasn't here. Verse 19 says that there were 12 teams of oxen in the field that day. And Elisha, it says, was working the 12th team. But I, mean, I remember reading this the first time. I, I misread it. I thought he had 12 teams of oxen. I thought, man, that is a super tractor. No, it, there were 12 teams of oxen in the field that day, and he was running the 12th team. Now, I'm sure to Elisha, I'm sure to this, this man, uh, probably a very hardworking man, I'm sure to him it was just like just another work day. It was just like those that preceded it and much like those that would follow it. Uh, I, am, I, I, I imagine that he's just plowing there, working behind. He's on, he's on the south end of a northbound oxen. That's what he is. Just following these oxen and, and doing, doing this, this very noble work. But then the Bible says from across the field, the prophet Elijah approached him. Now, here's how I imagine it. I believe now that that God, again, we know that God called uh, Elijah to go to a certain place and to a certain family and and anoint this Elisha to be his successor. And and somehow he knew where it was, or, or rather he was able to identify him from some of the other workers in the field that day. And I believe that as soon as Elijah saw him, his eyes never left him. The first time he saw Elisha, he thought, there's the guy. 
That's the guy that's going to follow me. I don't know much about him, but he's the guy. And I, th- I can imagine Elijah walking across that field, and he's watching him the whole time. Elisha. And he, he comes up to him. Uh, he, comes, he gets close to him, and it says that Elijah removed his cloak. Or what, Yeah, well, why don't I use it? Yeah, I, I didn't know that this was going to happen. Um, hey, this, don't be throwing this around. This is a cloak, all right? He, 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 uh, he took it off of it. It was like an outer garment. It was, it was like a kind of a robe. And, and he just walks up to him. He pulls it off and he puts it on that shoulder, on the person of that, uh, on the shoulders of Elisha. And he puts it on him. And, 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 and he, he, he placed it there. Now, Elisha apparently knew who Elijah was. He apparently knew him. Uh, he was a well, Elijah was a well-known person. And Elisha apparently knew who he was, and he recognized the significance of what Elijah did by placing that cloak upon him. Because in doing so, it set him apart. It set him apart from all the other people in the field, from all the other people in the nation. It set him apart. There was an anointing. You know what that's what anointing means? Is to be set apart for a holy purpose. He understood the significance of that, that there's a setting apart. Because it says Elisha left his oxen, and he ran after Elijah, and he said to him, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I'll come and follow you. Elijah responded, go back, what have I done to you? And then look at verse 21. Again, it says, Elisha returned to the field, he butchered the oxen, he cut up the wooden plow to use his as fuel, he boiled the meat and he fed the people. And then it says he left the people and began following Elijah, all in verse 21. I don't want you to miss the significance of his actions. I don't want you to miss the significance of this man's actions. These oxen, please understand, these oxen were not a couple of old, used up, dried up milk cows that were only good for stew meat. Uh, that's, not, that's not what this is. These, these, these were not just staggering along, ready for slaughter. And the plow, the plow that it says he broke up and burned, this was not, this was not some branch that fell out of a tree. These were useful. These, these things, the, the oxen, the two oxen, the, the, the yoke, the apparatus that was pulling the plow, the plow itself, these items, these, these animals, they were useful, valuable, essential farm implements that provided a financial future. I mean, you can imagine, many of you are involved in, in agriculture, you can imagine the value of something. They didn't have tractors, of course, back then. This was their tractor. This was their farming implement. This represented a future. This represented income. This represented a family perhaps at some point. This was valuable, essential, and useful. And he didn't sell them. He He didn't say to Elijah, hey, listen, man, I will follow you, but Give me a little bit of time. I gotta, you know, I gotta sell these things, and I and I need to, I need to, you know, separate myself from the equipment and make it all happen, and then I'll come and follow you. It says he burned the plow and he slaughtered the oxen. Now, listen, please understand. This is very important. There's nothing inherently wrong with either plows or oxen, right? That's not why he burned the one and slaughtered the other. He didn't do that because, you know, oxen are evil and plows are bad. 
he destroyed them or, or sacrificed them essentially, but, but it, not because they were inherently evil. You know, I got nothing against plows. I got no, in fact, I like cows. You know, I like, a, I like a medium well with A1 sauce. That's how I like my cows. Nothing wrong with cows. Nothing wrong with plows. Here's the thing. Why did he do it? Because in keeping them, he, keeping them would have kept Elisha from doing God's will. That's very important. He didn't, he didn't burn one and slaughter the other because they were evil. He did them because he knew that God had called him and there could be no turning back. You know, we sang that this morning, intentionally so. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, this is about seven centuries before Jesus came. Jesus was already there and God, he's always been. But you understand that before, before Jesus was born and, and ministered as a man, that was seven centuries earlier, but this is basically what he's doing. He's saying, I have decided to follow God's will, and I am not turning back. This, I have set my course. I slaughtered the oxen, and I burned the plow. Wow. I mean, this is, this is like total commitment. What Elisha did that day was a demonstrated commitment to go and to do. I want you to see that. It was a demonstrated commitment to go and to do. It wasn't just, it wasn't just, I'm going to do this and I say that I will. He did it and he made it so that he couldn't turn back. Not just words, but demonstrated actions, actions from which there could be no turning back. It's interesting. I mentioned a a moment ago about seven centuries later, six or seven centuries later, A couple of people stood before Jesus, at least, at least two, came before Jesus and they asked if they could become his disciple. Jesus gave them a reply and he, he says, I, I need you to do this. But after considering the cost of being a disciple or the cost of discipleship, the Bible says both of them walked away. And there may have been others, but there are at least two that are recorded. They wanted to follow him, but when they learned that there was a cost to following him, they did not follow him. Let me say that again. They wanted to follow him, but when they found out there was a cost to follow him, they no longer wanted to follow him because they learned that this is going to cost something. And it's still this way. People today, people today, 2019, people today in Aberdeen, people today in, 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 in many places throughout the world, people today can be quick to declare, follow Jesus, of course I will follow him. But then when it begins to cost something, when, when now you understand when I say cost, I don't mean purchasing salvation, it's already bought, It's already done. Jesus paid the price on the cross. Glory to God. You don't need to do one thing to purchase, but if you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, if you truly want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's going to cost you. See, that's a misunderstanding. Well, I'll just become a Christian, and and he saved me, and I can go back to a date and say, well, this is when it happened. Yes, glory to God. Thank God for that beginning. The, The price of salvation is absolutely free, but there's a cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ. begins to cost us something. When God's word tells us to repent of and to renounce something, 
When God's, I'm going to say it again, when God's word calls us, commands us to repent of something and to renounce something, and it's something that the world around us says is good or celebrates it or says it's fine, that many people experience this or do this, you can fill in whatever that might be. It's at that point that we have a choice whether we will go and do or we will not go and we will not do. I was talking to our guest earlier. Um, I forget, it was this morning, breakfast or last night at supper, we were sitting around our table, I think it was last night, and, 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 and our guest was talking about the price that is paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ in that place. That you, you give up so much, that you surrender so much. Do you know that in that place there are very few, if any, nominal Christians? People that say, because when they say I'm a Christian, suddenly there's a cost. There's a cost societally, there's a cost in their family, there's a cost in their finances, there's a cost in their education. Because they say, yes, Jesus paid the price for my salvation, but if I'm truly going to become a true follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost me. And here in our world, in our world, in our culture, in our nation, and sometimes in our city, it's one thing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'll tell you what, when the persecution comes, when the price is high, when saying I'm truly a follower of Jesus Christ means you're going to lose something, it's going to cost you something, then we'll see, we'll see who the true believers are. <sighs> I don't like that, but that's the reality of it. We have a choice. Will we be a follower of Jesus Christ? Will I do what is necessary to do his will? Will, will, I, will I, even good things, will I say no to the good thing? Will I say no to that? Will I even say no? That, that part of my life is no more. Even if it wasn't evil. And sometimes even when we do point out the evil, Sometimes even when we do point out the evil, people say, well, I'm going to hold on to that. I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor where I have said to people, that is absolutely wrong, and here's why, and I point them to Scripture, and they say, well, yes, but I don't want to give that up, and I never see them again. I can't tell you the number of times. I say, it's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. And they don't come back. They go someplace else. Or they don't go at all. We have a choice. See, a commitment to following Jesus Christ will cost you. It's always been this way with God's people. When Noah committed himself to God's purposes, it cost him, as people undoubtedly ridiculed him for decades. When a woman anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil, it cost her the derision of other people in the room. When Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, repeatedly refused the advances of a woman who was consumed with lust, it cost him his freedom. Do you really think, do you really think today, do you really think that you can commit yourself to Jesus Christ and to his purposes and not pay some kind of a price in some kind of a way? 
Do you really think that we can say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and that it's going to be easy, and that it's going to be smooth sailing the rest of your life? It's not. It's hard following Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth it. Oh, it's a million times over, a thousand times over, a hundred million times over. It's worth it. You see, what we receive from him, what he does in us as we give ourselves to him, as we give ourselves to his work, is of far greater worth than all of the riches of this world combined, but it will cost you something. You can no longer, see, this is a dangerous message, you can no longer call yourself a Christian unless you're willing to pay the price of what being a Christian really means. came across this quote recently, and, and, and I want you to see it. Author, some of you have heard of her, author and Bible teacher Kay Arthur wrote this, and I want you to see it. She wrote this. She said, if you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to him, then don't begin, for this is what Christianity is all about. It is a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Jesus Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. That's a powerful statement. By the way, that's one you could pull, you could pull your phone out, and really, you could pull your phone out right now and just snap a picture of that and, and then print it off later. In fact, I'll just get out of the way for a minute so you don't get my ugly mug in there. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. If you don't plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and walking in obedience to him, then don't begin. But this is what Christianity is all about. It's a change of citizenship, regardless of what country you're in or who's in power. It's, it's not, it's, it supersedes that. It's a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Jesus Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. But I'll say it again. It's worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it to say if this is what you've called me to do, if this is what you've called me to be, then it's worth slaughtering the oxen and burning the plow. Look down at the end of verse 21 again. You've got your Bibles there. Look at the end of verse 21. It's an important point in Elijah's and Elisha's relationship. It says, then Elisha set out to follow Elijah and he became his servant. It says he became his servant. Some Bible translations say Elisha assisted Elijah or ministered to him or helped him. But it is most often translated he, Elisha, became his, Elijah's servant. Elisha became Elijah's servant. If you're taking notes, write this down. Elisha demonstrated a commitment to serve. Elisha demonstrated a commitment to serve. First, he demonstrated a commitment to go and to do, and here he demonstrated, demonstrated, acted out, a commitment to serve. Now, earlier, I mentioned, and this, this was not a small 
incidental statement. Earlier, I mentioned that Elisha would not succeed Elijah for about 10 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. Here's the, here's the really interesting thing. Maybe you've never noticed this, but from Elisha's calling here in 1 Kings chapter 19 until his master Elijah was taken to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha is never mentioned, not even once. Don't miss the significance of that. For 10 years, for 3,600 and about 50 days, nothing Elisha did merited recording. But in those 10 years, Elisha served and helped Elijah. <laughs> we like to talk about, and, and, and Lord willing, we're, we're going to look at Elisha's ministry as well. But, but we look at Elisha and we, we go to the quick points. I mean, all of the miracles, the wonderful things that God used him. Yeah, but for the first 10 years, not one word about what Elisha did other than he served Elijah. For any person who aspires to leadership, and it's, it's a good aspiration, but for any person that says, I want to be a leader, if you want to lead, first learn to serve. Do you know that Jesus himself said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself, who had all authority, said, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. And he demonstrated that by giving his life for you and for me. You see, in the, in the, in, within Christianity, it's, it's, we refer to it as the upside-down kingdom. Jesus himself said, the greatest of you will be the servant of all. We don't like that. We don't like it when, 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 when all of a sudden you mean, for, you mean for years I may in anonymity serve where no one sees and no one recognizes and no one acknowledges what I'm doing? Yes, that may be what God calls you to do. But if you do that faithfully in whatever way, you know, there's some of you that are, that are doing things right now at AFA, have done for a long time, will be doing it even in the coming weeks. And I'll tell you what, here's, here, God, I got some good news and bad news. The, 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 the bad news, it, at least initially, is that, that, that some people may not even acknowledge what you do. <laughs> in fact, when it's all said and done, you may be saying, you know what, nobody recognized me. Well, we might later on when you move to Minnesota or something like that, we'll acknowledge you. You're going to serve because we do it as unto Him. Because we do it because a life is going to be changed. It's not about us. It's never been about us. A Christian philosopher, and yes, there have been a few of those, a Christian philosopher named Blaise Pascal wrote this. Lord, 
Help me to do great things as though they were little, since I do them in your power. And help me to do little things as though they are, as though they were great, since I do them in your name. I want you just to chew on that a little while. Lord, help me to do great things as though they were little, since I do them in your power. God, there's some things that you're going to call me to do. There were some things that God called Elisha to do and Elijah before him that were so big and so heavy and so daunting and at times so intimidating. Help me to do great things as though they were little since I do them in your power. See, that's how it can be done. They're going to be big, intimidating, daunting, and you can't do it in your strength, but you can in his power. And help me to do the little things, what, what me or perhaps even others regard as little. Help me to do the little things as though they are great, since I do them in your name. God calls us. God calls us. You're, you, regardless of how long ago, whether it was a week or two or three weeks ago, or a month ago, or at Easter time, or, or maybe it was decades ago. Listen, you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. Glory to God, I rejoice with you. But being a follower of Jesus Christ means more than just saying yes weeks, months, or years ago. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is, Lord, I will do what you want me to do, and I will go where you want me to go, and I will be what you want me to be, and I will trust in the way that, 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 that I can only trust in you because it is in your name that I do it. commitment to go and to do and a commitment to serve if nobody notices but he does he does you know what I really long to hear oh it's nice to hear great job thanks boy that was really good that's nice. <laughs> you know what I long to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your reward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Right where we are and in this altar. This altar of where we're seated right now. Your Holy Spirit has done a work that this preacher could never do. Hallelujah. And I thank you for it, Lord. Your Holy Spirit is the one that can take your word and bury it deep into our hearts, expose our hearts, expose our motives. Lord, you've called every one of us to go and to do. May we in those moments that follow your call or in those days or every time that we have this opportunity, Lord, may we not say, price is too high it's too difficult I don't want to let that go but rather Lord if you call me 
if you tell me to do something, then I believe that you're going to give me the strength to do it by your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, if you call me to serve, when no one else sees it, no one else knows, it seems that no one else cares at times. May we do it faithfully because we do it as unto you. Because the joy is not in the acknowledgement. The joy is in knowing we've done what you've called us to do. I pray that at this altar of prayer for every one of us. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that, again, we're going to go throughout the activities of this day and we're going to give me a a hundred different things in the next hour they're going to capture our attention for even just a few moments so Lord in these final moments bring it to our hearts imprint it on our minds in this altar of prayer right now Lord reveal to us some oxen that need to be slaughtered, a plow that needs to be burned, representing the things that represent what we once did, but you're calling us to something else. What we once did was good, but you're calling us to something else. And Lord, right now in this altar of prayer, as you call us to serve, May we do so for an audience of one. And it's you. It's one of the hardest things we can do. Lord, help us to serve you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Would you stand with me, please? These altars are going to be open. If you, if you uh, would, would, would want to, please understand and and. And would you also respect those that, that are around these altars if they just want to spend some additional time in prayer. But I want to pray with you one more time before we go. Lord, thank you for my brothers and for my sisters. Thank you for calling them. Thank you for equipping them. Thank you for sending them. And thank you, Lord, for these servants. I ask your blessing upon us as we go and we do your work and your will. We pray these things. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen. Go in the power and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ.